Father, thanks for uh, our morning. Um, thank you that we get to laugh, we get to celebrate, we get to think about, um, you know, going and hanging out with our families and friends uh, to watch uh, a Super Bowl. Um, but the reality is that you are so much greater. Um, that this time, uh, we don't come to, to worship um, people or sports or games, uh, but we come to worship you. Uh, and that's exactly what we want to do. And so would you use this time uh, to glorify yourself and to bring us along in our journey of faith? Um, solidify our faith, grow us, let our roots grow deeper, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so we just kind of did some uh, a Super Bowl kind of things, and the reality is being on a team, it's, it's a good thing, right? Um, but how do you know that you're on a team? Like, usually it starts off like you're wearing the jersey, right? So that you can identify with that particular team, but it's not just about um, wearing the jersey. Uh, when you join the team, they give you the playbook, and when you have the playbook, you're able to execute the plays uh, of that particular playbook. So they give you the playbook, and then you know you're on the team when you start executing those plays of that team's particular playbook. It wouldn't make any sense for you to start using some other team's playbook when you're on a new team, all right? So you have the jersey, you have the plays, and you are executing the plays. Now, you can have a jersey and not be on a team. That just means you're a fan of the team. I'm a fan of a team that doesn't do very well most of the time. Some of y'all are fans of teams that do the same kind of a thing, but if you're just wearing a jersey, that just could mean that you're a, a fan. You know that you're on the team when they give you the playbook and you start executing uh, the plays. And it's easy for us to tell when it comes to, to football and sports what team you're on, but what about when it comes to family or when it comes to uh, particularly the family of God? How do you know if you're in the, the family of God or not? Uh, in our world, in the context that we live in right now, um, there's some pretty mixed up ideas on what it means to be in the family of God. For instance, some people would say, uh, in order to be in the family of God, you have to get everything just perfect, right? You got, you got to live perfectly in order to be a part. But the reality is that, that we couldn't be perfect, and, and so God sent Jesus, that's why he came, the perfect for the imperfect, the sinless for the sinner, some people would say in order to be part of the team or to be a part of the family of God that um, you're just kind of born into that. Like you got a mama and a daddy who were believers and because you grew up in a family of believers that you somehow automatically you become a part and a member of the family of God. But yet we know that every person is going to have to stand account before the Lord on their own one day. And so mama and daddy praise God that they were believers and, they, and, and you were raised in a house that gave you the truth as you were growing up. But it's not going to be their faith that saves you. It will be your faith in Jesus that ends up uh, saving you and what Jesus has done on the cross. Some would say if you've gone to church your whole life, that kind of means that you're in the family of God also, almost like uh, a common law marriage sort of a thing, that you've been together for so long after a while the, um, the county or the state just says, well, they seem like they're kind of committed to one another, so they're just gonna, we're just going to call them married. And, and so if you've been hanging around the church for long enough, we just, hey, I assume um, that I, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm in, uh, um, I'm going to consider myself a part of the family. But we know that just hanging around Jesus doesn't mean that you've trusted him doesn't mean that you have a relationship with him. And of course, there's all kinds of other examples in our, uh, in our culture as well. But if these aren't markers that say that these are what guarantee you in the family of God, then, then what are? Um, I want you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. 
Um, Mark chapter, or Mark is the, is the series that we've been going through. We've called it Tethered with Jesus, um, living our life as disciples of Jesus, coming and connecting with him. Uh, and as we're jumping into Mark chapter 3 this morning, I'm going to kind of bring us up to speed. Um, right now, Jesus, he's called people to follow him, right? He chose 12, uh, two weeks ago that we read about, and he said, hey, I'm going to show you what it looks like to be a disciple of mine, to be a disciple of Jesus. And he said, in, in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, a disciple is going to be somebody who is with Jesus, somebody who uh, spends time with him, and, and that's the focus of their life. A disciple is going to be somebody who tells others about Jesus, about the good news of Jesus. And a disciple is going to be somebody um, who, he said, cast out demons. He's going to send them out to cast out demons. And for us in our culture, we said that's going to be fighting against evil and pushing out and against the darkness. And up to this point, we know that there are crowds that are following Jesus wherever it is that he goes. Like, they are crushing in on him. And right now, Jesus is in the town of Capernaum, and people are flooding into the house that he's in. They're, they're not just outside the house. Now, they're flooding inside of the house. And there is rising tension from the religious leaders about Jesus and his context. And the tension is not going to get any better from Mark chapter 3 on through the rest of Mark, or, or for the purposes of Jesus' life, that tension doesn't go away for the rest of his life while he's on earth. Actually, it only gets worse from this moment. And by now, we, we've read enough in the context of Mark to see that we can expect trouble to come from the religious leaders because Jesus is doing something new. He's, he's blowing out the categories of their thinking about how God's supposed to work. He, he's blowing out the, the size of their boxes. And he's doing something new. What we don't expect to see is trouble starting to come from inside his own family. This next section is really unique because Jesus has already begun to draw a dividing line between the crowd and who the true disciples are. And now he's going to be making that line even clearer. And he's going to show us what it really means to be in the family of God. And Mark is a fantastic storyteller. He uses all kinds of different motifs to show us what he's telling us. And so he's going to start using this insider-outsider language. And he's going to say there are some that are inside and there are some that are outside, but the ones that you would expect to be on the inside are outside, and the ones that you expect to be on the outside are the ones who are actually on the, the inside. And so I want us to look at chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a, and if a house is divided against itself, the house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has ridden, risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless, the, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, there are a few things that stand out to me and that pop out to me as we read this text that I want us to kind of focus on. 
The first thing that we see when he starts talking about the family here is that we see opposition comes from actually inside of the family. Sometimes in our lives, and as we read in the context here, sometimes that we, we, the opposition is going to come from the people that are close to us. And you've probably experienced that in your life at some point. But why is it that the people who are closest to us end up misunderstanding us the most or hurting us the most sometimes? And here, here's what I think. I think it's because the people close to us, when we give them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to say the benefit of the doubt, but, but I, I love to say the benefit of grace. When we give people the benefit of grace, our families tend to know us best. And they, and they tend to have our best in mind, right? And, and with our best in mind, they know us, they know our tendencies, they know what we like, they know what we dislike, they know how we're wired. And, uh, and, and our families tend to be extremely well-meaning, but they also tend to believe that they've got us all figured out. Again, they think they know our tendencies. They know how we respond to things. And when you act in a way that's contrary to what they think about you, misunderstanding has the opportunity to kick in. And so we have well-meaning and well-intentioned family who unintentionally misunderstand us. Does that make sense? Well-meaning, but sometimes misunderstand. Look here at Jesus. Jesus' family is now back in Nazareth, right? Which is some distance away from Capernaum, where Jesus is at right now. And they hear about what's going on. People are following Jesus. Um, there are crowds around him everywhere. And they've heard the rumors and they've heard the stories about who Jesus is. Now think about this. Mary raised Jesus from birth to his 30s here. These brothers of Jesus, they've been around him his entire life. And they've known what to expect about Jesus. They, they've seen him in diapers. They've, they've, they've seen him uh, playing out in the road, and she's changed those diapers. She and they know what to expect about Jesus, but now things are a little bit different. These stories don't sound like the Jesus that they grew up with. Things have changed, and they're concerned about his health, and they're concerned about his, his welfare, and, and they heard that he's not even taking the time to eat because of all the crowds that are around him. And that's a big deal. And they've heard that there, was these, there are these crowds that are just kind of taking up all of his time. And he doesn't even have the ability um, to get away from them anymore. They're just, they're just so consumed with needing something from Jesus. And like any good family member should do, there's a genuine concern that begins to kick in. And the mother and the brothers, they say, hey, we've got to go get him. Like there's something going on here. We've got to go get him. And, and it starts off with, hey, I'm worried about you. You just don't kind of seem like yourself. Something seems off. And then that concern begins to turn into accusation. Hey, you've lost your mind. They, they, they think for some like Jesus has lost his, his mind. That's what they say. My son, our brother, has lost it. He's gone off the deep end. A couple things that I want to point out here is that the word seize um, that Mark uses here, it literally means to arrest or to, or to physically take away, right? It means to physically take away. They were ready to physically take Jesus away because they thought that he was starting to lose his mind. And the word, therefore, uh, out of his mind, it has the inclinations of mental instability. They think something isn't clicking right in his mind anymore. They think maybe he's tired and he's worn out and because somehow he is just uh, mentally exhausted, now he's not thinking correctly uh, anymore. So here's what we have. Jesus is called by the Father to go and preach the good news. He's going around and he's telling people, 
about repentance. And he's got, the, he's got the job and the goal of telling people about the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is here. This is why he was sent. And because he's doing his job and what he's called to do, his family begins to misunderstand. And they say, he's crazy. They looked at the evidence and they misread the evidence and they did not understand what was taking place. And I, and I want us to pay attention to this because this is so subtle, but I want us to see how it works. They have a genuine concern for Jesus, but they're confused. They're trying to figure it out. And confusion, it first comes out as concern, but if we're not careful, it can quickly turn into criticism because the person isn't acting like you've come to know about them. And the person isn't responding the way that you would expect them to respond or acting the way that we want them to act. This kind of stuff happens all the time when it comes to families, okay? Do you see how it works? Jesus is doing what the Father called him to do, but because they misunderstand it, they try to seize him and to take him away. And if they were successful in being able to take him away, that would essentially stop the work of God that Jesus was doing in their, their midst. Why does this matter for us? And here's why it matters. Maybe you've experienced something like this before. You started to hear about Jesus. You're interested about Jesus. And so you went to church and you're compelled um, by the teaching or maybe you're compelled by the music that you hear. And so you start reading your Bible. And then the Holy Spirit starts doing Holy Spirit kind of stuff. And he starts to convict you through the scriptures of certain sin in your life. And he starts pointing out things and you say, okay, I'll, I'll start making some, some of those changes. And you soon realize that the greatest need in your life isn't just cleaning up our language or maybe somehow cleaning out our, fr our friend list. We realize that the greatest need in our life is actually Jesus. And so you say, Jesus, I believe. I sinned. You didn't. You died for me. I believe. And so you start then following Jesus. And then you have a, a family member come along or a close friend who comes along and says, hey, what are you doing? Like, like we, we thought this was going to go away, but you've become a fanatic. You're like, you've gone crazy. You've lost your mind. You're going to church, and now you're reading your Bible, and now you're hanging around other Christians, or, or now you're not doing the things that, that we do or the things that we like, and you've changed. You've lost your mind. You're not acting like what we've come to expect and what we've come to know about you. And you know in your mind, you know, I'm not crazy you're following Jesus, you're following the passions that he's put on your heart, and you know that you're not crazy, but they don't understand. And because they don't understand and because they're confused about what's going on with you and in you, their concern starts turning into criticism. And that criticism turns into persecution and questions and doubts. Family can be a really interesting thing sometimes. Second thing that pops up from this passage is that not only do we see uh, opposition coming from inside the family, but we also see opposition coming from outside of the family as well. Sometimes opposition will come from the outside, and in this particular case, it comes from the enlightened religious leaders here. How does it show up? Well, while Jesus' family is on their way from Nazareth, there's a mob of scribes, or, or what we understand as teachers of the law, who have been summoned from Jerusalem. Okay, from down in Jerusalem, like they have to now get out, out of Jerusalem and come to Capernaum where Jesus is at. I want you to know that this is an official delegation of leaders now who are beginning to show up. They are coming from home office. These are the big wigs that are getting ready to show up in Capernaum. And again, I think the intent is, is well-meaning. 
And I think they have a defense of God, but it ends up coming out in accusations because they don't understand what God is doing here. There's genuine concern for the truth of God here. These are men who have given their entire lives to study the scriptures and to study the law and to teach the law. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt here and say, man, these guys that are coming from Jerusalem, they have loved God, they've defended God, and they are doing their job, but they don't yet understand that God, the God that they've been studying, the one that has had their attention all of their lives, the, the one that they've been looking to, they've, they've read the law, they've studied the prophets, the one that they've been looking for, it's actually him. Everything that they've read and everything that they've been studying and everything that they've been teaching is pointing towards Jesus. All of it was pointing to him, but they were missing it. They were missing it. Isaiah 61 was being lived out right in front of them, but they were missing it. Isaiah says in chapter 61 of the Messiah um, who was uh, coming, he said, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah said that the Messiah was going to come and when he was going to be coming, he was going to be setting captives free. What is Jesus doing? He is setting captives free. But instead of celebrating what Jesus is doing, what they end up doing is they throw some pretty nasty allegations at him. And so what may have been well-meaning to start off here becomes very hostile, and it falls off the tracks real quick. Think about this. The scribes are sitting in a room in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're hanging out. They haven't seen Jesus. They haven't heard Jesus. They've just heard secondhand stories about Jesus doing miraculous things. He's teaching with authority. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Things that normal people would think, huh, maybe God's up to something here. But without hesitation, they assume that somehow this is all satanic and a work of evil rather than a work of God because they don't have a category in their mind big enough for what God is doing with Jesus because their box is too small to fit something that they've never seen before into what God's able to do. They, they're, they're, they start hurling allegations. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who, come, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. That's a pretty big leap, isn't it? He's teaching and he's preaching. People are being charged and healed. He's casting out demons. Well, that sounds like a work of evil, huh? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Beelzebul here is another name used for, for Satan. There's a, a lot of different der, der, um, derivatives of uh, why people think that uh, what Beelzebub was. Some people said it was the Lord of the Flies, and some people said uh, it, was the, it was the Lord of the Dung Hill, that there was, there was dung. And, and, and so uh, some say that Beelzebub comes because uh, the culture was worshiping a god uh, called Baal, and Baal was of Satan. Um, but it's another word here that's used um, to mean Satan. And Jesus uses the word Satan of this in just a few minutes. Um, so it's another word for Satan. What they're saying was that the work that Jesus was doing was being empowered by Satan rather than from the power and the authority of God. And they were saying that his work, therefore, it was evil. And that's a pretty bold claim to hang on, on Jesus. When I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but see that they were making the same mistakes that Mark was showing us that his own family was making. Because of their confusion, there was a genuine concern that began to bubble up inside of them for the holiness and the reputation of God, but that concern began to cause them to criticize and throw out accusations against Jesus without understanding what was going on in his life. 
And so they call Jesus in this moment, they call him a pawn of Satan. That's the conclusion that they come to about who Jesus is. And, and the way that Jesus responds to this is fantastic. It's amazing. It's the first time that Jesus starts using parables in the book of Mark. Um, a, a parable is just simply, it's an illustrative way to highlight a spiritual truth. And you're going to see be, Jesus begin to use these parables when he speaks about the kingdom of God and when he begins to reveal the kingdom of God uh, to, to the culture around him. And then he'll go back in and he'll sit with his disciples and they'll ask him, hey, what did you mean by that? And he begins to unpack what it means to, to live and walk and be in the, in the kingdom of God. And so as we move forward uh, after chapter three here, you're going to see Jesus now for the rest of, um, for the rest of his earthly life, you're going to see him start using parables uh, quite, quite a bit. And what he says, he says, guys, there's a problem here against your logic. Your theology is a little bit confused. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house won't be able to stand. And I love how the NLT says it here. It says, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. A house divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and it's divided, he can't stand. But he's coming to an end. His power is coming to an end. What Jesus is saying here is why on earth would Satan try to cast himself out? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It just seems so self-defeating. A house divided against itself can't stand. It just becomes weaker. It doesn't become stronger. It doesn't make any sense. And he says, oh, by the way, only a stronger man can go into a strong man's house and bind him up and take what once belonged to him. It takes a really strong man to go in and bind up a strong man and to take his stuff. And guys, this is so good, and I don't want us to miss what Jesus is saying here, because what Jesus just said, and these men who were standing there, they got it with crystal clarity. What Jesus said was, I am the Lord. I am powerful. I have the authority to stomp into areas where Satan has been at work and to bind him up and to render him weak and to render his work powerless. And I have the ability to go in and to render his work weak and powerless and, and his life weak and powerless. I'm able to go in and then snatch the teeth right out of the mouth of the lion. He has no power over me. In other words... The work that I'm doing that you call evil is the work of God to bind the power of Satan and set people free. That's good stuff, guys. That's real good stuff. And this is Jesus putting these religious leaders, those who call themselves enlightened, he's putting them out on blast here. He says, guys, this is not the power of Satan at work. This stuff is the power of God right before your very eyes. And I, I, I want to say this as a caution for us. When we make assumptions and inferences about people, it causes us to try to fit what God's doing into our little boxes of how we think God can use others or how we think God should use others. Jesus was doing something that they had never seen before, and they couldn't get their minds wrapped around it. And instead of celebrating what Jesus was doing and coming along and following him, they stayed on the outside and they hurled insults inside at Jesus. I'm going to hit verse 28, because this is a verse that scared me to death when I was a kid. Um, and this is a verse that has caused so much angst and anxiety in believers um, throughout the history uh, of the church, so much so that there have been people who have wondered if they've committed what is called the eternal sin here, or what we would understand as the unpardonable sin, and, and, and wondered, man, can I still be in the family of God? 
Like if I, do, if I do this, if I do something wrong, do I somehow get kicked out of the family of God? Look at verse 28. <clears throat> it says, I truly say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies that utter, but, what, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Yikes. What does that mean? What, what, what does blasphemy mean? What's the eternal sin mean here? Okay, the teachers of the law, they're taking the work that God was doing, this powerful work, and they're attributing it, they're giving credit to all this stuff to Satan himself, and they refuse to believe that Jesus had the same authority uh, of God. Now, when I was growing up, man, this verse, again, it scared me to death because I thought, if we put it in our team context, I thought, how do I get on the team? How do I stay on the team? And if I get on the team, can I be kicked off the team at some point? I, I thought regularly, what if I do something or I commit some type of sin and, and God won't forgive me? God just says, you know what? I, I'm, I'm done with you. Scared me to death. And so I would try really hard not to do anything wrong. I would pray and then just like try to be real, real good. And that would work for like two minutes. And, and, and then I would mess up. And, and then when I would mess up, I would begin to think, is that the one that did it? Is that the one that kicks me out of the family? Is that the one where God just kind of washes his hands from me and says, you know what, I tried, but you, you, you are unsavable, you are incorrigible, and nothing, I, I can never do anything with you. Was that the one that kicks me out uh, of the family? Uh, one commentator that I was reading said, you know, hey, first of all, if you're worried about it, it probably means you likely didn't do it, okay? So, so let's just kind of start in that space. God's heart is for the people that he's created. Um, he wants us to know him. He wants us to be with him. His desire is to bring us into his family, to be on his team. Um, notice what verse 28 here says. It says, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And when he says all, do you know what he means? He means all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Here's what I want you to understand, though. This is not universalism. Okay, Universalism, uh, universalism is a false religion that says no matter what you do, eventually everybody's going to be saved. And to be honest, that sounds real nice. It just sounds like that is a real nice answer to say, I mean, everybody at the end of the world, we're just all just kind of, we're going to make it and we're going to sit together and we're going to sing Kumbaya. Like it feels really, really good, but it's false. It's not true at all. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's how you get into the family of God. What Jesus is saying is that this means that God wants to forgive sin, and he does it through Jesus himself, but there's a prideful condition of our hearts that chooses to reject the work that Jesus has done. There's a prideful condition of our hearts that just keeps us from seeing anything that God does as from him and attributes that to Satan. And because of Jesus' death on the cross and what he did, right, his mission on earth, anything can be forgiven. His death has covered every conceivable sin that we're capable of. But a person's got to be willing to lay down their pride and got to be willing to walk towards Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness that he wants to offer. If not, they land in the same place that the scribes and the Pharisees end up landing in, in this, this place. The scribes were committing blasphemy as they displayed hostility towards God's one and only way of salvation. So you're like, well, what does that mean? What, what do I do with that? The way that we respond to a verse like that is the way that we avoid what he's talking about is that we trust Jesus. 
and we, and we step into his family. And when you step into his family, the beauty of how God has designed things and wired things is that we don't earn what he's given to us. And so if we can't earn what he's given to us, that means we can't possibly uh, earn something to kick us out of the family. His work and his salvation is solely based on the work of Jesus and not on the work of us. Um, uh, Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's not by um, our works that we're saved. It's not because we did anything right. It's because his grace in our life. That's what brings us uh, into his family. And so the beauty is that there, there's no fear for those who come into Christ because he tells us in his word that uh, once you're in his hand, that there is no one who can come in and snatch you out of the grip of his hand. You are as secure as possibly can be secure in the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus himself. So how do we enter into the family of God? Let's wrap this up. Sometimes opposition is going to come from those closest to us, and that hurts. Sometimes opposition comes from those outside of us, those who consider themselves wise, and that hurts also. But we don't get distracted by opposition. Our attention goes solely to Jesus. It goes towards the family of God. So what does it look like for us to be in the family of God and not worry about the rest of this stuff? Simply put, people in the family of God Jesus tells us we do the will of God. We execute his playbook. How does that work? Outsiders let confusion lead them to criticize. Insiders let Jesus lead them to do the will of God. So we've had the parents and the brothers. We've had the religious elites who have shown up. And now the parents and, or the mom and the brothers begin to show up again. So the mother and the brothers of Jesus, they finally show up at the house where Jesus is, is at, and, and they see everybody there. And so I want you to picture the scene that Mark paints for us here. Again, like there's this inside-outside motif going on, and those that you expect to be inside are outside, and those you expect to be outside are inside. And Jesus' family, they've come all the way to see him, and they are on the outside of the house in this instance. Because remember, they don't get what's going on. But in front of Jesus... Inside the house, his disciples are sitting all around him at his feet. People who have said, I'm in. I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. And this is how Mark writes it in verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came in, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, This sounds so harsh, okay? Sounds so harsh in verse 33. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked about at those who sat around him and he said, Here are my mother and brothers. How would you have felt if you were in Jesus' family in this moment? That would have felt pretty hurtful, right? This, this is a pretty big deal. Family was so important to the Jewish community in the way of life. Natural family relationships were highly valued. And yet Jesus here, he wasn't saying that his family wasn't important to him. That would be the wrong conclusion to make of this. Just because he says this doesn't mean that he doesn't value his family. But what he's doing here is he's reordering family. He's reordering family away from the natural genetic DNA family, and he's ordering it around the spiritual kingdom of God family, the spiritual family of God. It's going to take precedence over blood relationships because the blood relationships will end at this earth and then we'll have an eternity uh, of relationship with the Father. And so he's highlighting the, the nature of brothers and sisters in Christ and the spiritual family of God here. And the way into that family of God, he's saying, it's never going to be by just simple natural birth. It's not, it's not blood relationship here. 
the way into the family of God. It's never going to be by powerful positions or, or leadership. It's not going to be because you've got a lot of influence all over the place. It's not going to be because you've been hanging around the church for a, a long time. He says, members of the family of God don't come naturally. They come by spiritual birth. They come by trusting Jesus and following Jesus and stepping into his family and doing his will. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see how inclusive that is? They didn't say anything. He didn't say anything about sister a second ago, but he brings in brothers and sisters and mothers. It's inclusive uh, of those who would trust Jesus. And so what does it look like to be in the family of God? People in the family of God, we do the will uh, of God. Well, what's the will of God that they know at this moment? It's chapter 3, it's verse 14. To be with Jesus, to tell others about Jesus, and to push back the evil and to push back the darkness. Now, if you've ever wondered about being in the, the family of God, here's how it works. And, uh, and I say this kind of tritely, but, it, but this is, it, it's as easy as ABC, okay? If you've ever wanted to be in the family of God, and if you're sitting in here right now, and you've never trusted Jesus, and you've wondered, how can I get in? And if I get in, can I stay in? And if I get in, do I get kicked out? I want you to know, this is how you get in. Would you throw that up there? First, you accept that you're a sinner, and that you need God's grace. You just say, man, like, I, this is who I am. Like, if there's anything good in me, it's going to be because God did something in me. It's not because I bring that to the table. Yeah, I do some right things every once in a while, but I need the grace, love, and mercy of Jesus. So you just accept that. And then you believe that Jesus died in your place. Again, like we said from the beginning, the sinless for the sinner, that he took your place because of your sin. And then you confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning that you let him in your life and you allow him to lead. You come as he was calling his disciples and you follow. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Let me take it back to the, the team analogy real quick. Being on a team is a good thing, but how do you know that you're on a team? You have the jersey. Jesus comes in and he rewires your identity. He gives you his identity for your old identity. You have the plays. He shows you what discipleship looks like, and he calls you to discipleship. That's his playbook, and you start executing those plays. We follow him, and we do the will of God. Just because you've been around the church for a long time doesn't mean that you're in the family. Just because you've got influence and power doesn't mean that you're in the family. The way that you enter into the family is through the person of Jesus I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And if you've never trusted Jesus today, man, it's as easy as ABC. And I'm going to offer that to you this morning. Like today could be the day on Super Bowl Sunday of all times that you could say, you know what? Jesus is my Lord. It's been football. It's been sports. It's been my wife. It's been my husband. It's been my kids. It's been comfort. That's been my Lord. But you can say, you know what? Today, the Lord is my Lord. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, you're good. Um, you're, you're just so, so good. And your word is convicting to my heart and it's convicting to our hearts and it teaches us and it trains us. And your word is so timely for us. Um, but there is no greater need in our life right now. It's not the food that we're going to eat later. It's not the game that we're going to watch. There is no greater need in our life right now than your son, Jesus. And so if there's anybody in the room right now who's never trusted Jesus for their life, your way of salvation... I want to ask that you would just allow them to um, reach out to you right now to say, Jesus, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. 
And I need your grace. I believe that you took my place on the cross. And I confess Jesus now as my Lord. And I will follow him. Guys, if, if you're a, you've never trusted Jesus and, and you want to trust Jesus, I don't ever do this, um, but I sincerely want to pray for you. If you, want to tr- if you have just now trusted Jesus or if you want to trust Jesus, would you just throw up your hand just so I know that, that I, I'm going to be praying for you? Father, if there are, are, are folks who are in the room who've been walking with you and you've been their Lord, but maybe we've stepped off to the side um, and, and we've allowed things to get in the way of you being our focus and the kingdom being our focus and people finding you being the focus, would you just bring us back? Would you bring us to that place? Father, we want to be surrendered to you and whatever you have for us. Would you take this moment and use it and stamp it in the kingdom for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.